This is episode 196 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, The Great Believers, A Great Book. This episode is part of our Sunday literary series during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. Hey, hey, hey. So finally, I have a book that I can highly recommend. What a treat after several kind of mediocre books that we've had in the last few weeks. This one is called The Great Believers, and it was published in 2018, and it's written by Rebecca Mackay. Now, here's the thing. It's about AIDS. So I know what you're thinking. That's just too depressing right now or too real because unlike some of the other pandemic-themed books that we've been reading over the past few weeks, they were more fantasy or completely improbable. And here, although it's still a work of fiction, it is very realistic. It's not heavy on facts the way The end of October tried to cram a nonfiction book into a fiction story, but it is realistic, and she does educate us about the disease and how it rampaged through the gay communities in the 1980s. A bit of background about the book. It was uh, published by Viking Penguin Random House in June of 2018, And it won, listen to this, the 2019 Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction. It was a finalist for the 2018 National Book Award for Fiction. It was a finalist for the 2019 Pulitzer Prize in Fiction and won the LA Times Book Prize, uh, as well as the ALA Stonewall Award and the Chicago Review of Books Award. So for once, I I really like a book that uh, the critics have liked also. And here's a little bit about Rebecca Mackay. She's American. She grew up close to Chicago and currently lives in Chicago, where the novel is mostly set. She's the daughter of two linguistics professors. Yikes! Uh, Actually, that must have been lovely. And her grandmother was an actress and novelist in Hungary. She graduated from Lake Forest Academy and earned a master's degree from Middlebury College's Breadloaf School of English in Vermont. And she has taught at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, Northwestern, Lake Forest College, Sierra Nevada College, and Story Studio Chicago. She has two children, and the issue of motherhood uh, is very difficult, but very significant to one character uh, who is a woman who is involved with the gay community and very traumatized by the AIDS epidemic in the 80s. Okay, let's get to the book because there's lots to enjoy here from a writing standpoint. And you know me fussing about bad sentences, word choice, and confusing narration, and we get none of that here. 
And why is Mackay capable of writing like this and those other authors aren't? I can't answer that, except perhaps having linguists for parents does make you more interested and careful. She also doesn't write nearly as fast as some of those other authors that we've looked at, so that's probably a factor too. This is her third novel, however, she's also written some short stories also, but nothing has been as acclaimed as The Great Believers. Her first novel was The Borrower, uh, published in 2011. It also won some recognition from Booklist, Indie Next, O Magazine, and Chicago Magazine. It's about a children's librarian who gets involved with a 10-year-old who has been sent to gay conversion camp, uh, do I sense a theme here, by his evangelical parents. And the two escape to Chicago and talk about children's books, which appears to be an interest of, of Mackay's based on her website, and I'll bet the book is very fun. Her second novel was The Hundred-Year House, which is also set in the suburbs of Chicago and was uh, recognized by Chicago Writers Association and Book Page, and it's about a house. Surprise! And the divorce family who live there and a bunch of memories and stuff in the house, archived records and a massive oil painting. And paintings uh, also show up in The Great Believers, as well as the stories behind paintings and how memories and secrets are stored in old records and what they mean to people who lived those lives. And being the owner of a trunk full of memorabilia myself, I can relate, and perhaps you can too. The Great Believers is really two stories. One runs us through the 80s and what happens to a bunch of friends in Chicago as AIDS begins to descend on their group, who falls sick, how it changes them, and the endurance of that trauma. The main character of that section, Yale, Yes, there are all the usual jokes about his name in the book, too. Uh, works in development, fundraising, for an art gallery, and he discovers a collection of paintings that belong to a woman who's a relative of one of his friends. And this elderly lady lived in Paris in the 20s in her own lovely artistic community and group of friends. And as Yale pours through her shoebox of memories, he learns about the paintings and her life. There's actually an interesting subplot about development. Here he does it for Northwestern and how families react when old people want to give away things that have monetary value instead of giving them to their relatives in their wills. And I know it sounds predictable, and some parts are, uh, but as work, it's kind of interesting, and also psychologically, it's interesting. And it feels very real and challenging and uncomfortable in the book. It, it is well done. Anyway, so one of Yale's friends is Fiona, and the other story is about her in Paris in year 2015, so quite recent, right, uh, where she is searching for her daughter, and these two stories interweave uh, where time advances in the 80s through 1992, while the second story stays always in 2015. So time moves a lot slower in the more recent story and quite fast in the older story, if that makes sense. Now, my criticism of the book 
is that there are a lot of characters in both stories, and some of them are not very strongly drawn. So sometimes it's a bit hard to keep them straight. I think the book might have been stronger with fewer characters that were more completely filled in. The main characters are really great, but there are some supporting players that are a bit vague. It's also possible, I I hate to say this, the book might have been better if it was a bit longer. I mean, it already clocks in at 400 pages, so it's no small thing. But, you know, to really have created these, these worlds that she's creating, it's possible she needed a bit more time to do that. So back to characters. Have you ever noticed that it's easier to keep characters organized in your mind when they're distinctive in some way? I know it seems obvious, but it's why I get so mad at authors that give their characters similar names. It's like, help us out here. We readers are going fast and we need help. Make them different in some way. Sometimes I think authors like obsess over their characters' names when we readers are just like, just make them different from each other. It seems so simple, just so we don't get confused. So I'm embarrassed to say that there were two characters with similar names uh, that I did have to go back and figure out at some point who was who, but you know, that's probably me. But that's it. That's my only complaint about the book, I think. Uh, We'll see if anything comes up here uh, during the course of the podcast. Otherwise, I really loved it. I really enjoyed reading it, and I didn't feel like rushing through it. It's not what you would call normally a page turner, but I actually did want to keep reading all the time. I was really curious about what was going to happen to these people, and especially Yale. I really cared about him. He's young, but so sensible. He just goes a little nuts sometimes, and it's such a sweet and painful story about how men at that time made mistakes in love and sometimes ended up paying a terrible price. Or as Mackay would put it, after love itself became poison. The title comes from an excerpt from F. Scott Fitzgerald, We Were the Great Believers. I have never cared for any men as much as for these who felt the first spring when I did, saw death ahead, and were reprieved and who now walk the long, stormy summer. The book opens up with a party that's thrown for Fiona's brother, Nico, who has just passed away. And from the book, (laughs) the reason that they're having a party, Nico had made it clear there was to be a party. If I get to hang out as a ghost, you think I want to see sobbing? I'll haunt you. You sit there crying, I'll throw a lamp across the room, okay? I'll shove a poker up your ass and not in a good way. (laughs) These people are fun. So Makai has said that the book is not about death, and I disagree. The book is almost entirely about death, so come fight me, Rebecca. But that also means that it is beautifully, exquisitely, and so completely about life, which makes it really invigorating and inspiring. We get a lot of lessons about how to live, not in a pedantic way from Makai, but from her characters. 
So anyway, at this party, a friend shows up with poppers, which offends Yale because that's inappropriate. And so this friend, Julian, defends himself. And I love this because it references the red mask. Remember the episode we did about the mask of the red death? Okay. So Julian says, but this isn't a funeral. It's a party. And it's like Julian was close again, conspiratorial in his ear. It's like that Poe story, the red death one. There's death out there, but we're going to have a fabulous time in here. Julian. Yale drained the Cuba Libre and spat an ice chip back into the glass. That is not the point. That's not how the story ends. I was never one to finish my homework. (laughs) Good one, Julian. Nico's boyfriend isn't allowed to come to the funeral or to help with the arrangements or to associate with the family that's shown up from out of town swooping in to intervene now that Nico has gotten sick with AIDS, a story that was repeated over and over. And the book is a reminder of how cruel the 80s were and how cruel AIDS was, how homophobia manifested itself in really cruel and inhuman ways. But our shock at being reminded of what it was like then is in itself a reminder of how far we've come. And that really is cause for celebration, which is why it's interesting to revisit something that happened 40 years ago and see how the distance of time allows us to see more clearly. One of their friends is a photographer who will show up again in 2015, and he documents what's going on what's happening in the 80s. And here's a description. Richard was always on the periphery, watching and shooting, a good 15 years older than everyone else in their circle, paternal, doting, eager to buy around. He'd bankrolled Charlie's newspaper in the early days. What had started as a strange quirk had become in the last few months something essential. Yale would hear the cameras click and think, he got that at least. Meaning, whatever happens in three years, in 20, that moment will remain. One thing that reminded me so much of COVID is the sense that AIDS keeps getting closer. Like at first, you just hear about it, and then it's affected someone you know just a little, and then it comes for someone you know, and then potentially for you. Now, what happens at this party is that Yale gets very upset thinking about Nico dying and goes to hide out upstairs until he feels more like socializing. And when he comes downstairs, no one is there, like everyone has vanished. Where the house had been full of all these people, there's no one. The lights are still on and the record player is still on, but it's reached the end of the record and no one is around, so I'll read you a bit of that. The foggy, ridiculous idea came to him that the world had ended, that some apocalypse had swept through and forgotten only him. He laughed at himself, but at the same time, he saw no bobbing heads in neighbors' windows. There were lights in the houses opposite, but then the lights were on here, too. At the end of the block, the traffic signal turned from green to yellow to red, He heard the vague rush of cars far away, but that could have been wind, couldn't it? Or even the lake. Yale hoped for a siren, a horn, a dog, an airplane across the night sky. Nothing. 
He went back inside and closed the door. He yelled again, You guys! And he felt now that a trick was being played, that they might jump out and laugh. But this was a memorial, wasn't it? It wasn't the tenth grade. People weren't always looking for ways to hurt him. He found his own reflection in Richard's TV. He was still here, still visible. On the back of a chair was a blue windbreaker he recognized as Asher glasses. The pockets were empty. He should leave. But where would he even go? Cigarette butts filled the ashtrays. None were half-smoked. None smashed out in haste. Copies of some of Nico's comics had been laid out on the end tables, the bar. But now they were scattered, probably more a product of the party than its end, and Yale plucked one off the floor. A drag queen named Martina Luther Kink, a silly punchline about having a dream. He walked through every room on the ground floor, opening every door, pantry, coat closet, vacuum closet, until he was greeted with a wall of cold air and descending cement steps. He found the light switch and made his way down. Laundry machines, boxes, two rusty bikes. He climbed back up and then all the way to the third floor. A study, a little weight room, some storage, and then down to the second again and opened everything. Ornate mahogany bureaus, canopy beds, a master bedroom, all white and green. If this had been the wife's work, it wasn't so bad. A Diane Arbus print on the wall, the one of the boy with the hand grenade. A telephone sat next to Richard's bed, and Yale grabbed it with relief. He listened to the tone, reassuring, and slowly dialed his own number. No answer. He needed to hear a voice, any human voice, and so he got the dial tone back and called information. Name and city, please, the woman said. Hello? He wanted to make sure she wasn't a recording. This is information. Do you know the name of the person you wish to call? Yes, it's Marcus, Nico Marcus, on North Clark in Chicago. He spelled the name. I have an N, Marcus, on North Clark. Would you like me to connect you? No, no, thank you. Stay on the line for the number. Yale hung up. He circled the house one more time and went finally to the front door. He called to no one. I'm leaving. I'm going. And stepped out into the dark. As it would turn out, something very, very important happened while he was upstairs. But I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm so mean, right? Really, you want to read this book. Mackay describes AIDS as a slow-motion tsunami that hit Chicago. Fiona, who's Nico's sister, remember, lands in Paris in 2015 and reconnects with Richard, the photographer. This is how he greets her. Fiona Marcus in the flesh and grabbed her arms to air kiss both cheeks. And although she hadn't used that surname in decades, she didn't correct him. It was a gift, this name of her youth, handed back to her by someone she associated with the time when she had been optimistic and unencumbered. Granted, she associated him with the next years, too, the ones with Nico gone, with Nico's friends who'd become her only friends, dying one by one and two by two, and if you looked away for a second in great horrible clumps. But still, still, it was a time she'd missed, a place she'd fly back to in a heartbeat. 
I don't want to revisit the epidemic entirely because we did cover it in our episode about pandemics and epidemics, but there are some facts worth pointing out. HIV, human immunodeficiency virus, remember how its victims fell prey to pneumonia and deaths were reported that way at the beginning? HIV started appearing in gay men in clusters in 1981 in L.A., New York City, and San Francisco. Since the beginning of the pandemic, 700,000 people have died in the U.S. of HIV-AIDS, and now about 13,000 die of it each year, which is about the same as it was in 1987. Deaths really started accelerating and peaked at 42,000 in 1996 and then fell off precipitously after the introduction of HIV treatments, cocktails, of antiretroviral drugs, which one character in the book says, then it was 1996. Suddenly all the good drugs came out. There was incredible stigma around the disease. Andy Schultz wrote, and the band played on in 1987 about how the government dragged its feet about AIDS because it affected mainly homosexuals, African-Americans, Latinos, and intravenous drug users. There was a lot of misinformation at the beginning, like COVID-19, which led to more men being infected. And some of the myths about that come out in the book as the men talk among themselves, and they present different arguments and different conspiracy theories. But it gets worked into the conversations really naturally instead of what sometimes happens in books where people just stand around giving a spontaneous lecture, which always feels so awkward. So Mackay doesn't feel obliged to fully explain things, which I think also is a trap sometimes for novelists who are writing about something that they've researched. So she, she works in uh, information. Here's an example. Nico had said, I think we'll have to worry less about getting beaten up, you know. People are afraid of blood. I mean, they might throw something, but no one's going to punch in the mouth coming out of a bar now, right? And Charlie had said, are you fucking kidding me? Attacks are up threefold. You should try reading the paper you draw for. Threefold, Nico. They'd all imitated him the rest of the night. Threefold. I shall now consume threefold beers, forsooth. <laughs> Mackay also talks about the protests and activism, which in real life included the formation of ACT UP and real pressure to fund research. In real life, it, it was a big deal and probably did accelerate uh, the, the delivery of treatments. A friend of mine who worked at a company who was working on one of the antivirals at the time described to me speaking publicly where there were a bunch of guys sitting in the front row like demanding answers now. He said it was quite intimidating. In the book, one character says that they just need a really big name to die of the disease for it to be acknowledged. And then Rock Hudson died in 1985 of AIDS-related uh, complications. And from the book, Charlie had been right. He'd said what they needed was one big celebrity death, and poof, there went Rock Hudson without the courage to leave the closet, even on his deathbed. And finally, four years into the crisis, there was a glimmer of something out there. Not enough, though. 
Other celebrities that contracted the disease were Magic Johnson. He announced publicly that he had the disease and would retire immediately in 1991. He was really open about the disease because he said he wanted people to know that heterosexuals could contract it as well. And Magic Johnson today is still going strong at the age of 61. Arthur Ashe. Uh, one of my favorite tennis players, I got to see him play in Paris in the French Open. He had heart problems, and it appears that he contracted HIV from a blood transfusion he received in 1983 uh, when he was undergoing bypass surgery. He eventually died at the age of 49 from AIDS-related pneumonia in 1993. And then there's Freddie Mercury, sob who died at the age of 45 from AIDS-related pneumonia in 1991, and he had been diagnosed in 1987. Mackay talks in her conversation with Rebecca Mackay about her motivations for writing the book, including keeping people aware of AIDS even today, and how if a book is successful, Publishers will publish more books about that topic. And she also talks about legislation and funding and how they are based on priorities or even prejudices, uh, not just about homosexuals, but about race and poverty. And that section, which comes at the end of the book, is, is worth reading. Since 1981, AIDS-related deaths totaled 35 million across the globe. That is a huge number. Today, there are about a million Americans diagnosed with HIV. There was a major outbreak in Indiana in 2015 in two counties in southern Indiana due to a, an injected opioid drug. Uh, it's been a real challenge to, to develop a vaccine uh, but it did uh, make headlines when a new agent entered a phase three trial. So fingers crossed. Okay, back to our book. There are a lot of little gems in this book, little insights into relationships or America. One of the things I love is that she has French people speaking English when they really sound like French people speaking English, like I can hear them in my head. That takes really good listening skills. She has such a good ear. Here's one. Fiona goes to um, Shakespeare and Company, a bookstore in Paris. And here she goes. Before they left, Fiona grabbed an English book of Paris history just so she wouldn't walk out empty-handing, the staff feeling sorry for her. Interesting, right? The mustachioed bookseller was ranting to a customer about American DVDs, something about frames per second. Americans don't even care, he said. That's why I moved to Paris. <laughs> And she describes someone as having an accent that contains a top hat and a monocle. So great. And in another place, Yale feels like tearing the air around him into shreds. Oh, and this was a good one. In another place, Yale is talking about Dwight, the copy editor. And he says he was a tedious person, but Yale hadn't caught a typo in the newspaper all year. <laughs> so great. And then there are just some, you know, little wise things, just these thrown away things that you, you just love and you just keep reading. At one point, Richard says, ageism is the only self-correcting prejudice, isn't it? That's so great. And another one from this uh, elderly lady who had the paintings, Nora, 
She says, time travel is so easy. All you have to do is live long enough. Since I've been picking on books these past few weeks, it was also really nice to see how Mackay handled some things. Remember how I complained that in The Red Lotus there was so much telephoning and message leaving and constant sentences that would go like, so-and-so called so-and-so. She let it ring five times, but no one picked up. So she left a message that he should call her later. He hoped that he'd get the message. Good Lord. So here's how Mackay does it in one place. He called Nora's lawyer again, got a message saying the office was closed for the holidays. God, it was January 7. He prepared to leave a message, but the tape let out a shrill beep that didn't end. (laughs) So great. I mean, there's everything right about that. And Mackay understands storytelling. And here's an example. This is Nora again with the paintings. She's telling a story about Modigliani, who was one of her contemporaries when she was in Paris. She pointed at Roman. Everything I read about Modigliani says he drank himself to death. That's bunk. He died of tuberculosis. The drinking was only to cover up the illness because there was such a stigma. He'd be at a party and start coughing, and he'd pretend to be falling down drunk and take off. Now, he really was a bit of a drunk. That's why it worked. He was trying to save his dignity. Isn't that funny? I don't think he imagined that decades later people would still be saying he drank himself to death. It makes me terribly angry. Did you write that down? Roman read from his notebook. Modigliani died of tuberculosis, not alcohol. Ha! Well, you missed a bit. Next time, a tape recorder. And she can do so much with just a few sentences. Here's an example. Yale tried to get Roman talking, asked him about his childhood. It's not what you think of when you picture California, Roman said. Truckee is where the Donner Party got stuck. They got stuck in California? It hit Yale as absurd. Cannibals and skiing, that's what we've got. Yale asked if he still considered himself Mormon, and Roman grimaced, hesitated. They make it really hard to leave. It's like trying to quit Columbia House. Ha! They send you sheets of stickers? Yeah, Roman said. You get 11 years of guilt for only a dollar. (laughs) So good. And then, you know, along with the laughter comes the sob, right? That's how it works. And in this part, Fiona talks about how people talk about AIDS now. It happened at least once a week that someone would wander into the store, and then when they discovered its mission, say something like, Oh, I remember that time. Fiona had learned to check her temper, to push her toes into the floor so her face didn't change. I knew someone whose cousin had it, they'd continue. Did you ever see Philadelphia? And they'd shake their heads in dismay. And how could she answer? They meant well, all of them. How could she explain that the city was a graveyard, that they were walking every day through streets where there had been a holocaust, a mass murder of neglect and antipathy, that when they stepped through a pocket of cold air, didn't they understand it was a ghost? It was a boy the world had spat out, here in her hand, a stack of ghosts. And here's another one. The other fantasy was the one where Nico walked beside her everywhere, wondering what the hell things were. He was Rip Van Winkle, and it was her job to explain the modern world. She'd done it at O'Hare on her way here, 
Focused as she was on Claire, on getting to Paris, she'd suddenly had Nico beside her on the moving walkway as it rolled past a sign advertising a firewall for your cloud. How could she even begin to explain why a cloud needed a wall of fire? And once he was in her head, he was following her all around the terminal, ordering food with her off the iPad at the pizza counter, jumping at the auto-flush toilet, reading the scroll at the bottom of CNN and asking what bitcoins were. He asked why everyone was staring at calculators. You're living in the future, he whispered. Thief, this is the future. And when she saw something he'd fully understand, a baby crying for a dropped pacifier, a McDonald's, a whole wall, was it still possible, of payphones, she felt the world had been set right. The book is really skilled at bringing people to life. And so then when she kills them off, we really suffer. And it's interesting, some of these pandemic books just heartlessly kill off characters There's someone killed in the end of October, a main character, and it just hardly makes a ripple because the author is so focused on getting rid of the corpse in a really gruesome way. I think it was in Darwin's radio, a major character dies, someone's husband. And it's not even shown. Just when the next chapter opens, he's already dead. Wow. Talk about heartless, right? In The Great Believers, your grief over Deco dying just keeps growing, and he's already dead when the book opens. So what it takes, take note, writers, is that it makes the tragedy so much stronger, you know, so painful. You don't have to kill off thousands of people to make your readers feel something. You can just kill off one, and that can be your dystopia. There's a scene where Yale conjures up an image of men in a hospital down the hall and across the city and around the globe of men feeding their lovers water drop by drop. It's completely heartbreaking. And also, you know, those men at that time were so hated. It's just, it's tough. But when we grieve, we are really experiencing love, right? And here's a bit about that. They'd sat a long time talking. Fiona said, I always thought geese were so funny. Dan had started laughing, and she said, No, what I mean is they mate for life, right? But they all look exactly the same. They are exactly the same. How would you ever tell one goose from another? I mean, what? Do they all have different tastes in music? But a goose could recognize its partner from miles away. And we think we're so special, Dan said. He got it. And this was when she started falling for him. True love and all that. You think we're as random as the geese? But the tragedy, she said, is that knowing it doesn't change a thing. So you can read The Great Believers and go back to the 20s with the Spanish flu and the 80s with AIDS and 2015 with, well, you remember 2015. And it's Chicago, right? Chicago with Halstead and the Cubs, and the L, and the suburbs, and Paris. There's such a strong sense of place and time in this book. And when two characters are fighting, Julian says to them, if we could just be on earth at the same place and same time as everyone we loved, if we could be born together and die together, it would be so simple. And it's not. But listen, you two are on the planet at the same time. You're in the same place now. 
That's a miracle. I just want to say that. Here's another section that feels a bit like COVID and is a bit of a cautionary um, commentary. The thing is, Teddy said, the disease itself feels like a judgment. We've all got a little Jesse Helms on our shoulder, right? If you got it from sleeping with a thousand guys, then it's a judgment on your promiscuity. If you got it from sleeping with one guy once, that's almost worse. It's like a judgment on all of us, like the act itself is the problem and not the number of times you did it. And if you got it because you thought you couldn't, it's a judgment on your hubris. And if you got it because you knew you could and you didn't care, it's a judgment on how much you hate yourself. Isn't that why the world loves Ryan White so much? How could God have it out for some poor kid with a blood disorder? But then people are still being terrible. They're judging him just for being sick, not even for the way he got it. So with the election bearing down on us and the recent Islamic terrorist attacks, including the beheading of the schoolteacher in Paris and of the churchgoer in Nice, here's a final piece for you. There's been an attack in Paris, and so these people are responding to that. I don't mean to sound callous, Fiona said, but we've been through this in the States, and it's not, no, Serge said, whatever, A hundred dead people, I don't care. That could have been a bus crash. What I care is now they elect right wing across Europe. And then, yes, you, me, all of us were screwed. Everyone acts from fear. The next year, two years, what happens, you think, to people like us? Fiona felt herself sinking. She said, things might seem different in the morning. Serge wheeled on her. When people are afraid, we get the Christian Taliban. We get it here, you get it there, and we're all in jail. We're all in jail. Richard had been quiet for so long that Fiona kept wondering if he'd fallen asleep. He stretched his arms overhead and said, Serge, that's enough. I'm going out there. Serge grabbed his helmet from the counter. Olan can fuck his curfew. Fiona expected Richard to stop him, expected Serge to stop himself, but Serge was out the door. Richard's phone rang again, but he ignored it. I didn't mean to offend him, she said. I'm not naive, you know that. He said, it's always a matter, isn't it, of waiting for the world to come unraveled. When things hold together, it's always only temporary. So there you are, a great book. I hope you read it, and I hope that the center does hold this time. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. 
And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.